You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. In this episode, we're going to step a little bit away from property and open up the discussion on share investing. We've got a pretty famous name out there on this podcast, and we're going to discuss three main points. What are the investment principles of the share market? How are they similar and dissimilar to the property market? You know, should first home buyers and home buyers more generally look to use the share market to save more deposit? And finally, what are some of the alternatives that investors who cannot afford to buy investment grade property, the only property we recommend with share investing? If you're young enough, and we're talking people under 30 here, you can absolutely have a fantastic retirement by investing regularly in shares and probably property, but for my for my own sake, without borrowing a cent. So I don't want people to finish this thinking, I've got to find a way to borrow to buy some shares because that's the smart thing to do. It can be useful, it can be smart, it can be all that stuff. But if you start early enough and you save regularly, I had an old maths teacher who said, if you put $1,000 away between your eight, a year, between your 8th and 30th birthday, you retire with a million bucks. That's pretty compelling, right? Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. When we were doing the research for our Fool or Forecaster report, we found a lot of parallels between the stuff that's written about the share market and property market commentary. There's also similar characteristics displayed by the investors themselves, those who invest for income versus those who invest for growth, those who stock pick and actively ride the market versus those who set and forget. They might pick an index fund and then leave it alone. Those wishful thinkers always looking for the next sure thing versus those who follow the value investing ethos. One big difference, however, is that the share market is so much easier to trade in and out of than the property market. You don't have to borrow money to play. You don't need to buy an entire asset and you don't have stamp duty as a barrier to entry. In this episode, we want to better understand investment fundamentals as they apply to the share market. We're going to explore investment options for would-be property investors who can't borrow enough money to buy an investment-grade property. And we're also going to find out whether the share market offers a viable option for first-home buyers to save up their deposit faster. And to help us in this quest, we are joined by the Chief Investment Officer of Motley Fool Australia, what a great name, Scott Phillips. We're going to ask Scott to explain what Motley Fool does in a moment, but suffice to say that his passion project is explaining how people can use the power of investing to improve their lives. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. We're looking forward to learning more. Wonderful. Good day. Thanks to be with you. Scott, good to meet you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, you know, followed your work for some time and uh, it's always good to, to meet people that you you know you respect. So um, the Motley Fool, I mean, uh, it's a cool name. <laughs> How did you uh, come up with that? Right. So 25, 26 years ago in the US, The Motley Fool started by two English graduates, okay. Tom and David Gardner brothers. And The Motley Fool in Shakespearean language is the multicolored court jester, so it's Motley and Fool, mm-hmm. who can tell the king the truth without losing his head. So the whole business is exactly about that, trying to break through kind of what you guys do, right? The elephant <laughs> in the room kind of idea, mm. taking taking the basics of finance and investing and make it accessible for everybody else rather than pretending that it's only for the professionals and the high-paid high flyers. But the idea being that you can tell the truth. 
to somebody who wouldn't otherwise want to hear it. Well, it's also, yeah, and also too, it's kind of nice not having any other conflicts of interest, right? We don't know my big investment banks. We don't have any, like, literally the only people who pay us, we get a little bit of advertising from kind of the Google AdWords type stuff. Mm -hmm. The vast bulk, 99% plus, comes from our members. If we do a really great job, they renew and hang around, which is great. Mm. If we do a terrible job, then we're getting a new job and I'm going to do something else. But either way, there's no one, nothing I can't talk about, no issues I can't touch, no conflicts to worry about, no investment banking relationships, IPOs, any of that stuff. Mm. It's all completely up to us and we get to tell the truth basically because we can. And so what is the business model for Motley Fool? Just say, because some people probably wouldn't know about it, mm-hmm. but um, you know, what is it actually, what is it? Right. So basically we are, we're a subscription investment advice business. So effectively our members pay us an amount per year, depending on what service they want to join. We have different services catered for different people. There's some high growth stock services and income services. There's portfolio services. So it's kind of a, a menu approach yeah. and our members pay us for advice on a yearly basis. And if we keep giving that advice, they keep hanging around. We're good. Um, that's pretty much it. We do have a, a money management business, a funds management business on the side called Lake House Capital. Um, that's a Chinese world business away from what we do in the investment advice business. So my business is the pure general investment advice yep. and we have a, an associated funds management company. And not only are you picking stocks, are you picking mm-hmm. timing as well? Like in saying that, you know, buy Woolworths, but only buy it if it's over $22 or under $22. So yeah, that's a slightly different question. So there's timing and there's price, right? Yep. So we do price absolutely. We don't do timing. I have no idea what the market's going to do next, nor does anybody else. And if they tell you they do, either they're lying to themselves or lying to you or both. Oh, so, so you're the, not a forecaster. Yeah, funnily enough, no. <laughs> um, and and again, so, you know, we talk about the things we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. If you're a big bank economist and someone says to you, what's the market going to do? Your job relies on you having an answer, right? And maybe you convince yourself that you know. Maybe you tell yourself, well, you don't really, but you should say something. I get to just say, I don't know. And in, and in investment circles, particularly investment advice circles, most people say there's a dangerous three-word answer, right? Because, well, hang on, what am I paying you for? And my answer is, well, I'm paying you for things I can do. You're paying me for things I can do, not necessarily things you want. And if there's a gap, I'm going to be honest and say, hey, here's what I can do for you. Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Yeah. So back to your point, Chris. Yeah, we, we pick stocks. Um, most of our services pick stocks once a month, regardless of where the market's at, because our job is to beat the market over time. Um, we don't worry about timing because who knows where the market's going next. Yeah. We do that look at the price and say, is 20 or 22 bucks worth paying for Woolies? But that's a different question to, is it June or July or is it August or September when we yep. have a market crash or the market's up or down 5 or 10%. So you're basically valuing that company and saying, look, it's worth a billion dollars, but you could buy it today for 800 million. We think that's a pretty good price. Spot on. And it's a good company long-term. Spot on. You know, rather than saying it's going to be worth 2 billion next year, uh, which yep. is kind of more the forecasting of where it's going to go. Correct. And yeah, exactly. That, that's market forecast stuff. And no one knows, right? Like yep. when was the last time you saw a, a stock forecast? So there's going to be a recession in this mm-hmm. time and actually stick to it and be right. You guys have talked about before. I love your podcast, by the way. You guys oh, have talked you. before about the fact that, <laughs> you know, the, the, the forecast that's wrong every <laughs> single year. And we talk about yeah. the broken clock phenomenon, right? Even a broken clock's right twice a, twice a day. Yeah. yeah. So there have been people <laughs> who've been bearish on the market since 1979. They still, mm. They're still bearish. And every 10 years they get to say, see, I told you I was right. Mm. And there's so much money lost preparing for the next crash there's probably more money lost preparing for the next crash mm. than in the crash itself yeah and so investing through that basically dollar cost averaging which we can get to later without getting yep. off too much of a tangent yeah i love that um, that whole idea of you know just investing regularly sometimes put 100 bucks a month in the share market pick a number mm. yeah sometimes you get a lot of shares because the share price the shares are cheap sometimes you get fewer because they're more expensive overall you're getting an average price through the market cycle mm. that's a far smarter way to try and invest rather than pick the timing so you probably don't go very well at financial advice conferences. I don't get invited to a lot of them, Chris. I'm no. tell you. <laughs> it's funny because I have to um, laugh at myself, really. Um, you know, I was, you know, starting in advice. I went to work at a fund, you know, a fund that picks stocks and, mm-hmm. you know, where the future's going to go. 
got sold on what an investment analyst does and, you know, and, and went down that process, realized investment banking wasn't for me, then went into financial advice and, you know, everything I read was we knew where the world was going and, yep. uh, we knew how to pick funds and we knew how to pick, um, stocks. Um, we knew how to build investment portfolios. Mm -hmm. We know how to rebalance. We, and it's all, it's all a lie. Um, and you know, it's all there to sell a product, which is ongoing investment advice. You know, it. um, and you know, it wasn't until I was probably, probably about four years in, um, I started to realize I didn't know and I didn't. And so since then I've kind of like said that those three words, I don't know where the world's going. I don't know where the best stock is and, you know, come up. I don't focus on that from an investment point of view. I focus mm. on other you know, dollar cost averaging from a strategy, you know, there's other things you can focus on and still get great results. You don't need to know where the world's going. And that's the good thing about investing. Well, it's mm. called understanding the fundamentals, isn't it? Well, that's it. And you think about what a financial planner is good or should be good at and what they're paid for, what they should be paid for. They're very, very different things, right? So structure is super important, right? I'm not telling you guys anything you don't mm. know. Structure is really important. Go and get a great financial planner to help you with the structure of your financial affairs, your insurances, your estate planning, you can do it a company or a trust or a personal name, a partnership. Those things are super, super important, right? And then on top of that, any big life change or life decisions, again, that's where the financial mm. planners are really, really valuable. The whole idea of clipping the ticket on X percent of your funds under management. I tell a story of my mum and dad um, 15 years ago. We we're getting charged seven grand a year in fees in total for a $300,000 portfolio, right? Mm. That's unconscionable. And so, mm. you know, and I'm sure the planner thought he was doing a good job and mum and dad thought he was doing a good job and the fees were all hidden in multiple lines of a, of a statement of advice. So you rarely see it. The reality is what you're paying and what you're getting are two very, very different things. Mm. Well, I mean, fees are very important, you know, in everything. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what's your view on kind of just low cost investing? Cause you know, a lot of our listeners are younger um, listeners yep. and they're, you know, their property is definitely something that's suited more to younger people than older people. Um, and they're looking to diversify out of property because maybe they're tapping out because their bank, is, you know, won't lend them any more money. They've mm -hmm. got equity mm. or they haven't even got a property and they're looking to invest. Yeah. And a lot of them are, you know, attracted to things like ETFs. And what's your view on those type of investing? Yeah. So, look, I mean, the first thing I, I would say, and again, I'll give you guys a wrap for your podcast, the, the, the behavioral biases you guys talk about regularly are the same regardless of asset class, right? So the first thing is everything you've talked about over the last, what are we up to, 60-ish episodes, mm. um, you know, that's you are a big fan. Oh yeah. Um, that, that's a, that, that those <laughs> are really important. I didn't even important. know that when I invited you on. <laughs> there you go. And and they apply across all of the different asset classes, right? So first thing mm. is like, understand that stuff about yourself. To your point that directly, Chris, or your question, I think ETFs are wonderful, wonderful investment opportunities because they're do nothing investments. Hopefully yeah. you can regularly deposit into them in, in a lot of cases anyway. The fees are super, super low. We know from, so superannuation, for example, right? People don't think about it when they're young, as you say, but it matters by the time you get to 60, 65. Mm. There's up to 40% of your super balance can be eroded by fees if you compare the high fee super funds versus the low fee funds. Yeah. 40% of the final amount, mm. literally, so the difference between a million and 600 grand, just to pick two numbers, or 2 million and 1.2, yeah. can come out of it just because of the compound value of fees. We know that investment returns compound. Well, mm. guess what? So do fees. And yeah. so, to, to your point, yes, absolutely. If, you, if you're just starting, ETFs are a wonderful place. No, I'm a stock picker, right, by trade. Yeah. So I could come out and say, no, no, pick stocks, pick stocks. Mm. If you're just getting started, buy an ETF, buy an Australian ETF, buy a US international ETF, regularly deposit into that into that ETF over time, yeah. you'll be very, very glad you did. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean that's so true, right? And I think that and one of the- can we just, Let's just explain what that an ETF is for listeners because- Perfect. Yeah, because it's- it, And there is, and I want to draw a distinction between an ETF investing as an, in an ETF and in investing in property mm -hmm. in a minute, but it's, please explain. Beautiful. So 
ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund, and they can actually be lots of things. So we need to be a little bit careful. I should have made that point because you asked the question. An ETF is any investment, any fund mm. that happens to be listed on the ASX or another exchange. In the past, they were just what we used to call index funds. So you could buy effectively with one transaction, you buy shares or securities in an ETF that tracked the ASX 300 and you would get the ASX 300's return. So the nightly news, when you see what's happening on the market, you're getting that return, less a little tiny bit for fees. That was an index ETF or exchange traded so you're fund. buying the market. Right. Now, there's plenty of others out there now. Anyone, any man these dogs created ETFs for you. can buy yeah. these leveraged bear ETFs, which means you actually make twice as much money if the market loses, but lose twice as much if the market yeah. gains. And there's gold <laughs> ETFs and there's all sorts of stuff around the place, right? Yeah. So you've got to be a little bit careful when we just say ETFs are great because mm. the ones we're all talking about that we think we're talking about are the index ETFs and yeah. they're super, yeah. super important. Um, so yes, an, e an ETF, an exchange traded fund. In the old days, you had to send a check to a managed fund or to a fund manager. Yeah. That guy normally, hopefully in the future, girls as well, invest that money on your behalf. And when you want the money back, you ask them for the money back. Mm. These days, you can do it using your broker, so Comsec or something else. And I mm -hmm. have no affiliation with a broker for the record. Um, but you can simply say to your broker, hey, buy me $1,000 worth of this index fund and you're getting the market's return, less a little bit for fees. And you mm. do it online. Exactly right. Mm. And you can buy Australia, you can buy international. And if we get to it in time, I'll, I'll explain why international is worth investing over Australia, at least in large part, which we yep. might get to later. Um, but yeah, so be diversified, grab an ETF, great way to get started. Yeah. And and just on the distinction, one of the reasons you want to get you in to talk today, Scott, is because when you're buying property as an investment, you are generally only buying one. Mm -hmm. um, most people, 73% of property investors in Australia own one. Right. Mm. So the odds are that you're only going to buy one. And and even if you buy one now, <laughs> hopefully you do really well and then down the track you can buy another one. Exactly. So when you buy your first investment property or your only investment property, you are sinking all your eggs in one basket. So I don't want investors to be satisfied with just doing as well as the market. Mm -hmm. You know, when you are making a one decision on one investment that is going to make a big, big, big impact on your future wealth, I, you know, 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 years time, mm. because it's a long-term investment, you've got to choose an asset that you believe will overperform the rest of the market. That comes down to location number one, but then within every location, you've got to choose the asset correctly. So it's mm. a very, very, very delicate and involved process to choose that type of investment, which is one of the reasons my business exists because yeah. it's so difficult. Right, totally. But when you're when you're investing in shares, you a don't have to put all your eggs in one basket, mm -hmm. and certainly when you're investing in an index fund or an ETF, then obviously you're you're tracking whatever the rest of the market is doing. So you're not overperforming, but you're not underperforming either. Mm -hmm. um, and and I you know I invest in ETF, so is so in some my super is is mm -hmm. um you know that's where I've allocated that. So. That's great. And mm -hmm. I think I love the fact that you've um, started talking about that. Now let's sort of get into what some of these, I guess, the principles of investment mm -hmm. that you abide by. Sure, sure. So, and what I think is really important, by the way, is that, and that's exactly our business, right? We're, we're paid to give advice to help people beat the market as well. So mm -hmm. that's where advice matters, right? That's where it counts when you're getting performance, that is market beating. If you're paying to match the market or lose to the market, then you're getting absolutely taken for a ride. Mm. So yeah, that, that's that's a really important. So I think that's where we're, we're pretty similar. All I would say is that ETFs are better than doing nothing. So for most people, just getting started alone is enough. So to, yep, what, yep. I assume what you guys would also say is it's better to be invested and match the market than not be invested at all. Oh, and yes. So there's, there's those kind of orders of of investing. Get yep. started, do something. If you can do something, at least start with something that matches the market and then go about trying to, trying to beat the market. Mm. Yep. So you asked about the, the basic fundamentals. Really, I mean, again, 
people like me will normally be telling you how wonderful, sophisticated, and clever they are and all that kind of great stuff. I will tell you there's nothing new being invented in investing in 30 years. There is literally, you know, some products and that kind of stuff. In terms of the investing best practice, it was kind of done by 1965, right? Mm. Like there's not that much more that's kind of going, hey, this is great new insight and breakthrough in terms of investing and here's what you need to do differently now. And we've just discovered that. The well, 40s- there's so many products that come on with these. This is what financial advice happens, right? <laughs> yeah. We get emails and it's like there's this amazing new product coming out. And uh-huh. what it, this is is an absolute return fund. And what we can do is get you a 7% return every year by diversifying you across asset classes. And and it's all brought out by a fund. And you're right, but we, we try to pretend that things are new and mm-hmm. exciting to sell products. But really, the fundamentals are still the same. Same shit, different shovel. Yes. You got it right. And that's exactly right. And so to your point about that, there's a reason those people are called product manufacturers, by the way, yes. right? The funds in, in the lingo, they're called product manufacturers because mm. it's what they do. They kind of create stuff and say, how can we separate some people from their money? Yeah. If they don't like product one, two, and three, let's create four, five, and six because they don't, they don't make money based on how much money you make, right? That's the key thing about these products. They make money based on how much you invest, mm. not how well you do. Now, some have a bit of both, mm. but when you're charging a couple of percentage points as the fee to start with, you don't really care how the fund performs, right? Other than you want to get more money into the fund in future. So it's that basic idea of how do I convince someone to buy what I'm selling rather than how do I design the very best product for that person? And that's between the ETF and most of the managed funds. Now, some beat the market. And so to Veronica, to your point, there are some fund managers that are absolutely worth investing in. And you should, if they can continuously continually beat the market, then they deserve their fees. But absolutely. can they? And that's the thing, right? So, <laughs> well, I mean, I think we have to, we have to acknowledge that some can. The problem is trying to find them. Otherwise, frankly, well, if I can't beat the market regularly, if you can't beat the market regularly, then both of us should go and find other jobs, maybe mm. digging holes with those shovels. Um, you know, <laughs> we, we, if we if we believe that we can do better than the market by applying some intelligence and some thought and some process, then that, in theory, and again, will be mm. will be will be shown up by our results one way or the other. Mm. That that is the that is the difference. But I think let's draw a distinction because possibly. A lot of people that think they can beat the market are getting in and getting out all the time. They're trying to ride that wave, <laughs> yeah, aren't yeah, they? As yeah. opposed to picking quality assets or quality stocks right. and holding it for the long term. Right. Is it would would that be fair to say? Yeah, long term investing is that. Well, uh, sorry, one of our co-founders, David Gardner, says long term investing is a tautology, and he's pretty much right. Right, mm-hmm. you can either be trading in the short term or you can be investing, which is by definition long term. Right. Yep. The market goes up over time. So generally speaking, if you're going to say where's the market going, two is out of three, the answer is up. Yep. And so if you if you want if you want to win a bet, back to your your you know fools yep. or forecasters, um, if you want if you want to win a bet, say up because at least that way you're more <laughs> yeah. likely not to win, right? You'll yeah, be right twice out of three times. Scenario, right? right. You're not right. playing two up, you're you know most likely it's going to go up, right? Yeah. Because you're companies not make more money by whatever percentage. Well, yeah. there is that. So yeah. so so yeah. Look, and you need to be long term. You need to be long term. I yep. I don't know. Again, as I said, I don't know where the market's going the next three months, six months, or even twelve months. I've said to our members regularly, if I'm right or wrong inside 12 months in any stock pick, I'm just either lucky or unlucky. Mm. There is very little, because here's the thing. If you're trying to beat the market, then you're buying something the market doesn't agree with you on. Because if the market's already right, yeah. you're going to get the market return. So again, when you guys do property, if the, if the house is already fairly valued, the unit's already fairly valued, then you're not going to be able to beat the market unless you manage to convince some sucker to pay well over the odds when you sell, and maybe that's part of it. But you want to buy an asset for less than it's worth, therefore the market's got to be wrong. Now, if the market's wrong now, don't expect it to realize it's wrong now and then be right tomorrow. Mm. It's not going to correct that error so quickly, right? Now, if you could be wrong, of course, but if you're right and the market's wrong, it's going to take time for that market mm. to go, oh, yeah, no, we do like that company. We, we, we made a mistake there. Either the results came in or the pessimism goes away or whatever clouds that are kind of hanging over the mm. investment thesis go away. That's going to take six or 12 months at the very least in, in most. Now, you can get lucky, but most of them it's got to take 12 months at least for that to actually happen. So inside 12 months, who knows? If the stock's up 20%, you're not a genius. If the stock's down 20%, you're not an idiot. 
may well be both of those things, but not because mm. of that. You've got to give it, and we invest for three to five years plus. In fact, five years plus is kind of the number that we try and use. Now, for many share market investors, that's anathema because they say, well, five years, what do you mean? I can buy and sell tomorrow and, and this afternoon, let alone you know, yeah. five and 10 and 20 months into the future. So yeah, long-term investing is absolutely the heart of it. And the other thing is the business fundamentals. So we are what we say, business-focused, long-term investors. But and, do you think, sorry to cut you off there, but no, do you think five years is enough for share investing? Because if you reflect on, I guess, different timeframes of, you know, 2002 to 2007 or yep. when that was probably okay, but, you know, like 2008 to 2013, um, you know, do you believe that five years is enough to, to for, for investors who, you know, want to make sure that their capital is protected, I guess? Yeah, yeah great is question. Long enough? So a couple of ways to answer that. Firstly is, when I talk about five years, I should have been clearer. It's the investment thesis to play out. Right. So not saying that everyone's going to make money over that time period arbitrarily and forever. Mm. Um, there are absolutely our five-year periods where the market falls as a, as a whole. Not very many of them for what it's mm. worth and not by a lot, but there are absolutely those periods. Mm. So yes, you need to have a longer time period than that. But in terms of your investment thesis, if you're buying woolly shares today because you expect that in future right. they'll be worth more, the three to five years plus is how you expect that thesis to play out. On a out. stock level. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Okay. exactly. I would say then over over any any time period, I still think, you know, we say to people, if you're investing, particularly within retirement cash, you talk about capital preservation, you should have, if you need money inside five years, you need the capital inside five years, I wouldn't have it in the stock market. I, just, yeah, okay. I wouldn't have it in property either for what it's worth. I wouldn't have it anywhere that you need to, if you've got to sell that share to pay a, a bill or a holiday, <laughs> right, well, lift, mm. or, you know, a term deposit or something mm. that's accessible and when the capital is genuinely protected, so we know the bank are giving, or the government's giving bank guarantees, so mm. cash in the bank at a couple of percent of term deposit doesn't sound very exciting. Much better that than losing 20% and having to sell at a loss. So that comes back to expenses. our question about whether you should use your share market to save your deposit. Right. So I think the answer is yes, depending on your time frame. Mm. Yeah. And so that it's all about time frame, right? If you have the if you have an absolute mandated endpoint, so you're going to start a family, you want to have a house in three years' time for the new family, at that point you're definitely going to buy no matter what, then absolutely not. The shares aren't the place for the – you could get lucky mm. or you could get really unlucky. Yeah. Either way, you're not smart by doing it. You're not clever by doing it. You just got lucky. You got yeah. unlucky. Yeah. So inside that period, no. I would say if you've got a five-year time horizon, five years plus, but you're not limited to that five-year time. Yeah. So in other words, if in five years' time we have another yeah, GFC-style problem, give it another couple of years and then you'll be okay again. So it depends on your flexibility on that time frame. I think shares are a great way to amass because you can invest regularly, small amounts. Mm. Brokerage yeah. is pretty low. You can that'll compound for you over time at about ten percent per annum on average over the very long term. So again, yep. to your point, Chris. Yeah. So I think yeah, if you I would say if you're gonna buy a house, what are we twenty nineteen now? Buy a house in twenty twenty four or twenty twenty six or twenty twenty two if it goes really well. Yeah. Then great place, I think, as yep. long as you're investing wisely and that does matter. Um but yes. if you have an absolute <laughs> deadline and you need to hit that if retirement's the same, right? If you need that capital within five years, not the not the interest or the dividends or the whatever else, yep. you need the actual capital at least five years, but make sure you're flexible in that time frame. I think that's a really good point. I get this quite a lot because I'll, clients will come to me and, you know, they're thinking about buying their first home and they're not ready yet because they haven't got the savings. They might have 100 right. or 150 or 50 and they're going, well, look, what do I do? I can't leave it in the bank because mm-hmm. I'm only going to get 2% returns. And there's this kind of myth out there that, you know, you've got to be getting a good return. Otherwise, you're losing money because of inflation, which is yep. true yep. This- over long periods. But mm. in short periods, if you're just not getting, you're getting 3% instead of 6%, it's not a big deal. And so, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I have to invest it. I have to put it in something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then they'll start looking at shares. And and I I, I do agree 100% what you're saying is if it is that three to five years range mm-hmm. and you're definitely going to buy something, the risk versus the reward just isn't there. And I guess, right. um, you know, market cycles like right, right now, I mean, 
stock markets, are they cheap or are they expensive if you were going to talk to people? I mean, what's your view? Yeah, they're not cheap. Um, markets around the world are on the more expensive side of average. Now, there's a whole lot going on, and we've talked about interest rates on the you guys have on the podcast And before. just so, what does that mean? So for the yep. average person who doesn't know anything, what does it mean when the market's not cheap? All right. So we, when we when we talk about um, measuring the value of the share market, we talk about price divided by earnings. So the PE ratio, the yep. price-to-earnings ratio. It's actually a really blunt tool, and there's a whole lot more you can yep. go into if you mm. want to get really wonky about it. But as a starting point to say, historically, how does the market compare to, to history? Yep. The average of the Australian market is about 14 or 15 times. So for every dollar of earnings, you're paying about 14 bucks per share. That's kind of the rough idea. At the moment, the market's trading, depending on who you ask, whether you use forward or historical earnings, and we won't get into that, um, about 16 to 18 times earnings. So it's Yeah, right. It's it's higher than average. And average is the average for a reason, which means half the time it's under, half the time it's over. So guess what? We're over. There's every chance future returns will be lower than historical averages. So yeah, Chris, to your question, it's it's more expensive than it ha- than, than average and than it has been in the past. Mm. The question that most investors are struggling with, or the ones who are putting their minds to this, is where do interest rates go next? If rates stay really low, there's an argument to say that the current share prices aren't super expensive because again, I won't get to the wonky algebra of it, but effectively the discount rate is lower because interest rates are lower. Yeah. And in that case, you should be able to pay more for an asset to get the required return. Yeah. So if rates stay low for a very very long time, today's share prices are probably fair. If rates move up by any meaningful term, and not next month, not next year, but over the next, again, five years, pick that number, then it could well be that shares are on the expensive side of fair. Now, that's a very different question to then what do you do? And the answer for me is I'm still investing anyway. Mm. And so that's where it's, that, again, that long-term perspective matters, right? Because whether I'm right or wrong, adding money to the market regularly is still the best way I know to deliver a market beat, well, A, a compound return that's going to pay for retirement, and then B, hopefully, a market beating return that is even better for you. There's actually, there's a good graph on your website. I uh, know we'll put the link in the show notes, which actually does show the share market over time. It shows how it dipped in the GFC and it dipped in, I don't know, whatever. Yep. <laughs> 87.99. That's it. Yeah, exactly, I'm, not, yep. I'm not as yep. au fait with the share market as I am with the property market. And, but you know, it's a similar thing. I mean, when you look at the, the gradual, the, mm-hmm. the general trend is definitely up. Right. And as you say, where's going to go up or down? Well, let's say three years is going to go up. Right. Yep. Um, so that whole idea of forgetting what the headlines are saying, mm-hmm. don't watch the you know, the end of the news where they have <laughs> yeah, all the charts right. up. You know, like don't yeah, be knee jerking because yeah. because yeah. the idea is if you're investing for the long term, it doesn't matter because it rolls out and you will do better in ten years than if you didn't invest. Yep. So it's that that sort of thinking though that it's really difficult, particularly with shares, because you can see every day what mm. it's worth bouncing around like crazy, and you go, oh my god, I got to get out, I got to get out, you know. And it happens so regularly, right? Because you see your portfolio value, individual shares go from two dollars to dollars twenty and back. Yeah. Not a big deal, right? But that's ten percent. If you've mm. got a, let's say, let's say, let's really forecast that mini dollar portfolio, drops by ten percent. That's a hundred thousand dollars. That's the price of a couple of new BMWs. Yeah, They're yeah. literally going up and down over over periods of time. Mm. That you know that that that's a really big. Thing. So the thing that's great about shares is the liquidity and the access, which is mm. wonderful. On the flip side, you're getting your shares quoted to you every second, six yeah. hours a day, five days a week, fifty two weeks a year. You can't get away from that stuff unless you choose to. To your well, point, take so, the app off your phone. I mean, right, don't look. Right. If, you had your, if you had your house price quoted to you every every minute of every day, it'd be a whole lot less comfortable existence, right? Than mm. sort of checking in with the agent every couple of years, seeing what's going on now, understanding what's happening with the market broadly, but not that day to day, minute to minute idea of where the share price is. Can you tell us a bit more about kind of day traders? And you know, a lot of people, you know, there's investing, which mm-hmm. is investing long term, which I agree. You turn the news, news off, you turn everything off. You invest on a regular basis, which is now for our listeners, dollar cost averaging, which you've mentioned a few times is, is an amazing strategy and everyone 
should invest that way should. for their long-term future. <laughs> yep. and just explain what that is. Then. Well, basically dollar cost averaging is you're, you're entering the market on regular, you know, frequency, whether that's monthly, weekly, mm. you know, quarterly. Um, it's kind of what your super's doing. Your super's, every time you get yeah. paid, your yeah. super's doing investing in the market, no matter what the market's doing. And over time that, that buys the market at the current price. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's not, not so good. Yeah. But really, it's 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 basically compounding your returns, and you know when you do it that way, you don't forget, you don't focus on the today's price. Mm. You're just accumulating. You're just buying more, and then when the future, when you sell it, you sell it at the future price, which could be 30, 40 years away. And really, I think with people with their super should be thinking, that's my share portfolio now. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can open up another one, but I've already got a share portfolio. When I think about my super, I've got one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a share portfolio, mm-hmm. and you know, change that kind of mindset. But do you think though, with kind of your type of trading though, mm-hmm. you know, when you're buying individual stocks, you can turn off from the news or do you think you need to be much more active in your approach because you're going from something that's ultra diversified to yep. something that could potentially not be? Yeah. So you started by talking about um, day trading, right? So the first yep. thing is we don't day trade. We don't, you know, I, I can't, the shortest holding period of any of our recommendations would be measured in months and mm-hmm. 99% of them in years. So mm-hmm. literally that's our, that's our time frame, right? Um, in terms of how we think about that question of individual stocks and how we think about the market, honestly, even the same thing. Because if, if I've looked at, and we'll use Woolies as a great example, right? Because it's a simple company that everyone knows. If I think about Woolworths, I'm thinking about what does their long-term future look like? How many, not how many exactly, but are they going to open more supermarkets or less? Or are they going to buy more, more poker machines? Right, exactly. Or, or are they going <laughs> to have more, more grog shops? Or are they going to have more whatever they are, right? And so- and what does what food inflation look like? What does a competitive environment look like? The chance that, that any of that changes by any meaningful amount in a day or a week or a month or even a quarter mm. is really, really, really low. Mm. So whether their sales growth is 3.2 or 2.8%, even on a six-monthly basis, is not going to matter. Now, yeah. over a couple of halves, you say, well, hang on, it's gone from 3.2 to 2.8 to 2.1 to 1.4. Gee, that's a trend I want, I want to be mindful of. And that mm. starts to become relevant. But mm. I can't think of a, you know, only in the case of a company announcement where they've come out and said, hey, we thought we were going to make a fortune. Now we're going to lose a fortune. The shares fall by 40%. You're like, okay, now I've got to do something. Yes. But frankly, by the time that's done, it's in the share price already. You don't mm-hmm. get advanced knowledge of that. People sometimes say to us, well, why didn't you guys know that? It's like, well, A, if I did it, be inside of, inside of trading, yeah. I'd go to jail. But yeah. B, nobody knew it. That's exactly the point. And so mm-hmm. there's very little that can happen. on a day. Nothing happens on a weekly basis other than those company announcements of earnings, which is February and August for most companies. That's when you should be paying a little bit of attention. Yeah. And only just to make sure whether the general direction is right. If all this is growing and doing well, that's all you need to know. If all this is declining and doing badly, that's all you need to know. And you can make those decisions accordingly. Mm. It's incredibly, incredibly rare that your thesis is going to spin on a dime from this was the world's best idea, now it's the worst idea or vice versa. Based on any single data point or even a couple of data points, it's the trend that really does matter. And so it comes down to really being confident with the choice you made in the first place, right? And yeah. then you can sort of just go around, eh, you know, it's sort of like just checking the, is it on track? Is it not on track? Totally. And then let it go. And particularly because the way we buy is we buy quality first and then try yeah. and get the best price we mm. can rather than buy cheap stuff that happens to be crap and hope it maybe is less crap in the future because that's oh, a that really hard exactly game to play. exactly like my philosophy about <laughs> <that> life. <laughs> well, it's, it's right because, you know, the, it, not only does it minimize your downside because if you buy a quality business, mm. you're going to get surprised from time. Like there's always going to be frauds. There's always going to be surprises. Yeah. That's why you have an, and your point is about diversification. I want people to get to 15 plus stocks as quickly as they can. Mm. Don't buy mm. two stocks and say that's my portfolio. doesn't have to be an ETF, which is 300 or something stocks. Yeah. But get to 15 or 20 companies as quickly as you possibly can. So if all these does well or badly, it's not going to have an outsized impact on your portfolio. So once you get to that point, then you can start to say, you know, 
if you're buying quality businesses, and if they're if they are, they're quality because they've probably been around for a while, they're probably growing, they've probably got strong brands, they've probably got strong competitive positions, those things aren't eroded very quickly. Yeah, I mean, there is lots of research around diversification, you know, where people believe that you need hundreds and hundreds of stocks. But, you know, what, what are some of the foundations there? How many stocks do you start to become actually diversified? Yeah. You know, is it's, it 30? <laughs> is it, you know, because there's, there's lots yeah. of, you know, talk around, you know, you can build a very diversified stock across lots of different industries with just literally 15 stocks, can't you? Yeah, so that's the thing. And this is where you start to, because if you're more too diversified, go and buy the ETF. Yeah. Like at some point, if, yeah. you're, if you're trying to diversify all that risk away, so there's people who worry about volatility, right? We know markets go up and down, share markets, that's what they do. If you're trying to get rid of all of that, then you're paying someone to take that away from you. Or in the case of diversification, you're diversifying buying one of everything. Guess what? You bought an ETF. You spent a fortune and a whole lot of time doing a whole lot of worry and a whole lot of brokerage. You might as well bought an ETF to start with. So, and the other thing is, ETF, by the way, is not four banks, mm. right? But, but I'm diversified. I own all four banks. Like, guess what? You're really not because the risks are the same. <laughs> yeah. You know, yes. with, with the exception of the Royal Commission getting some banks a bit harder than the others, if there's regulatory change, if there's economic impact, all four banks are going to go the same way. Mm. And that is a sort of interesting thing about the ASX 200 versus the S&P 500 mm-hmm. is that, you know, the top stocks in the US are all technology yeah. and the top stocks in Australia are all banks. Mm. Like yeah. that's quite odd, isn't it? Well, that's a bit of sad actually. I guess what does it say about <laughs> Both, yeah. what does it say about our investment in technology as a com- as an in- as a country? Well, um, I mean it comes down to our housing market unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. It does it a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. It yeah. really unfortunately does and this is, you know, there's a lot of people are property or shares, you know, mm. you're you're in the property camp or you're a share trader and, and people who love shares hate property and people who love property don't know about shares mm. and they hate shares and, and it's not really you can't really be on in either side. You really have That's to crazy. kind of be in the middle and need both. And they both have advantages and disadvantages. Mm. But a lot of the people who hate property and their share traders, mm. um, they think that, you know, the reason why they hate property is it's not productive investing, yeah. you know, mm. and it, because when you invest in companies, you create jobs, you create, you know, you know, innovation, et cetera. And I guess, how do you feel about when, you know, you see the housing market and people just investing in housing just with this kind of blanket view that they'd never want to consider shares. Yeah. Well, it drives me nuts both ways, right? I would say the same about shares, people not wanting property either. So, mm. I, you know, I, I I think what's really important here is people do, they absolutely feel like they need to be in one camp or the other yeah. and then hate hate one or the other. Um, I'll quickly touch on Veronica's point about the, the Australia versus the rest of the world. The Australian market, 55, 60% depending on the day is banks and miners, mm. right? That's not diversification. Even And this is why I was talking about ETFs very early on, talking about international and Australian. Only just an Australian ETF is not diversification, unfortunately, because no. you're getting, you know, $1 and two is in those two industries, mm. which is not diversification at all. So if you're going to do it, buy an Australian ETF and buy an international one. Yep. So that's just to put that aside. Yep. Um, in terms of the property shares debate, I think it's it's madness because you know, not all shares will do well, not all property will do well, and vice versa. And I think when you start to say to yourself, this asset class is terrible because mm. you're, you're actually closing your mind, which again, you, you guys talk about behavioral biases all over the time. That's the very story, right? If you mm. don't, if you can't think through where a property would be good and a share might be bad, or where a property yeah. might be bad and a share might be yeah. good, then you're not thinking properly. You're closing your mind, and not only is it you're missing opportunities, but frankly, if you start with that approach, you're probably missing something in your own preferred asset class yeah. because of that closed-mindedness. Yeah, you have to be able to say an asset is good if it does dot yeah. dot dot. Now, yeah. depending on your personal circumstances, your goals, your objectives, it might be because it gives me good, strong tax-effective income, mm. or because it gives me really strong capital growth. Or because it diversifies my portfolio, or because yep. of whatever. Mm. That's what's really important. I got to say, Chris, that that whole productive companies thing, I think that's huge furphy for most people. Mm. They they believe it's true. And look, companies do employ people absolutely. Mm. If you own sh- ten shares of Woolies, and I buy your ten shares of Woolies, I'm now a shareholder. Mm. 
neither of us have created in that transaction any value for Woolworths at all. Mm. We haven't created a single job any more than if we traded share or traded a house between us, right? Mm. The company exists, yes. Someone at some point puts some money in during an IPO and that was absolute money going to the company. Mm. But if I'm just swapping assets with you, whether it's property, whether it's shares, no matter what it is, neither of us is creating jobs. As a, as a quick aside, ethical investing, people say, I, I buy shares in, I sell shares in BHP and I buy shares in Wind Farms Incorporated, right? Because it's more ethical. And they can absolutely choose to feel better about that. And that's not a problem. I have no issue with that. Mm. But they feel like somehow because I'm invested in one rather than the other, mm. they're doing something for the environment. Well, newsflash, there's 10 shares of each no matter what you do. If you don't take part at all, those shares still exist. Whether you own them or don't own them, whether you own the property or own mm. the shares, it doesn't change what the companies do. It just changes who owns them. It has absolutely no bearing on the mm. operations at all. So people who, <laughs> people who try and make that value judgment of, property is passive and shares are act somehow companies, therefore they're active. Mm. They're missing the entire point. Unless you're giving money to the company rather than to another shareholder. Which is like an IPO. Like if, if there was more money going towards the stock market, right. then, you know, people would more likely list on the stock market and then you would more likely create new companies and things like that. Correct. So Correct. a land of innovation, which is kind of what the US has kind of got, right? You know, it's much more likely if you're going to list on the stock market, you go to the US because, you know, there's more money, right? Yes. And so I feel like that's the that's the kind of conundrum. We've got a $7 trillion property market and, you know, our share market's like a third $2 of that. $2 trillion, yeah. apparently. So, yeah. you know, we've got this kind of – and it's, it, I don't think it's really like that in the US, is it? I don't think mm -hmm. it's more the opposite. You've got a huge share market yeah. and the housing market isn't worth, you know, anywhere mm. near as much. So I guess that's kind of the, the challenge I think people worry about. And when they go to a bank, I want to buy, build a share portfolio. Okay, how much money do you earn? All right, so and so, how and how much money you got? Well, I've got a hundred thousand. I mean, a banks won't lend you another hundred thousand. You have to mm -hmm. go to a margin loan, mm. which is you know potentially they offer them. Yep. Yep. And you're luckily to gear that at twice. Yep. You know, yep. but if you go want to buy property, they'll say, well, I'll give you another <laughs> nine hundred thousand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the banking systems just like, well, we'll let you leverage. 10 times into property, mm -hmm. but into shares, you can only do it twice. Which is really interesting, actually, because that is one of the, the benefits of, I guess, of investing in property, obviously, mm -hmm. is that you make Huge. the money work harder for you via yep. leverage. Um, and obviously, but that increases the risk because people think that the banks don't risk it. They, they don't see it as risky. So That's therefore right. it's not. It's like, well, yeah. yeah, it is. And you're the one carrying the can because Correct. even though you might have lenders mortgage insurance, for instance, that actually covers the bank, not you. Mm -hmm. So there's all these sort of beliefs or misconceptions around that. But I was actually talking to someone yesterday. He's, he's a little bit older than me. He had some, he just sold some shares that he'd borrowed money on. And he said, it's really interesting because, you know, the bank has, you know, were talking to me basically had been watching the share price go up and down. And so they can get to a point because they can watch the share price as well. And then they mm -hmm. see, they see the price go down a bit and they go, oh, we're not comfortable with the amount of borrowings you got on the, that share portfolio any longer. We want you to either pay us back our money or sell it. Yep. And so he decided at that point that, you know, his time of life and whatever that he was going to sell and and he had lots of good reasons for that. But it was an interesting conversation because I've never borrowed to buy shares. And so therefore I've never gone through that exercise. But I do recall a lot of people who had a lot of margin lending back prior to the GFC and they were really under an enormous amount of pressure. That did flow into the property market because a lot of people had to sell their houses to pay back their margin calls. Mm -hmm. You got it. I mean, that's the, the margin call people say is that you haven't got margin calls on property yep. and 
that hasn't happened because it hasn't been a massive fall in property prices. It has happened though. Um, in regional areas. Well, well, when was it bank, Commonwealth bank bought bank West, bought their loan book, mm. um, some years ago. And it wasn't in residential though. It was in, in commercial, like a lot of people own pubs and, and that mm. sort of business. They, you know, that was quite well publicized that people had not missed repayments, but banks that send in their valuers and revalued and then real and said, right, well, you know, your LVR is higher than, than it should be. And so therefore we want that, that gap or we're going to actually, uh, foreclose. So yeah, that was, yeah. I mean, it has, it has happened like, you know, case by case banks at certain points in like the GFC and things like that, but we haven't had these major price falls. And what's happening right now is if let's say you have a big portfolio investor and one at the moment, you know, we're trying to do a discharge of a property, right? And the only way this bank's going to discharge this property is they want to revalue all the assets. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a margin call because what they're saying is that the total portfolio now was dropped, not just this one property. And the only way you can discharge that property is if you reduce your loan balance. Yep. And so this is a margin call on this client's portfolio. Yeah, totally. And and this and these things haven't happened because when they sold that property, it went up. They weren't worried about the other assets. And so here you go, take your property. And so it's something that we're starting to see. And it's, it's a myth that, you know, people believe that you couldn't get a margin call on property. What's happening? And mm. it's, it's going to start happening because if banks start feeling like their own apartments and apartments are falling, they can at any point in time, you know, ask you to probably revalue that apartment and reassess. So I do think that's going to happen more. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of interesting things in that. So I think part of the thing, it's the old line about if you owe the bank a hundred bucks, you've got a problem. If you owe a million dollars, they've got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and to some degree at, at scale, I don't see commercially how the banks can afford to mm. trigger widespread revaluations without destroying their own financial accounts. Yeah. So at some point, every bank CEO says, hang on, if I, even if I believe that all my loans are now worth X percent less because of falling property price around Australia, if that would force a revaluation across the board, it would destroy the equity they had in their banks. So mm-hmm. they're not silly enough until a regulator makes them do it yep. to actually go that far. Your example, Chris, I think is really key where they can pick the individual customers mm-hmm. and say, in that circumstance, let's just let's just make you a little bit less risky here because that's that's important to us. Mm-hmm. So that, I, that is I what's important. I had that happen actually myself because I sold a property last year. And to my knowledge, the loans were not cross-collateralized. Collateralized. They shouldn't have been anyway because I'd you know, anyway, but yep. the point being, they came back and said, right, we want you, rather than giving you cash, uh, we want you to reduce this loan. And they earmarked one of my loans and said, we want you reduce that by X. And I went, well, and for starters, that would not have been tax effective for me to reduce that one. I wanted to reduce a different one if that was going to be the case. But the thing was that they came back with three, three, three versions of valuations. One is their desktop, one was a drive-by, and one was the actual proper valuation, proper mm. valuation and they would give me a different percentage mm. <laughs> according wow. to each one. Right. So they were finally basically grading the risk yeah. according to the level of valuation that was done. So I just ordered, you know, proper, value, proper valuations of each property and they all came in fine. Mm. Um, and so I got to do my original path, you know, my original plan. But there was an interesting exercise, even the fact that they actually then attributed a level of risk to each type of valuation yeah. that they used. Which makes perfect sense. The, the, the mm. beauty for the banks or, or a financial institution of a margin call mm. is that because we've got that minute-by-minute, day-by-day valuation, you can very easily do it. You can also take small amounts off the top without having to force an entire book of revaluations. Yeah. Everyone knows what the share prices are worth. Mm. And so all you're asking someone to do is not sell the house and have that margin call up. Because you can't you can't sell a bedroom to meet a no, margin call, right? Yeah. Whereas if you've got a share portfolio with a thousand shares, you can sell hundred of them if you need to, or yeah. if you want to get closer to that line. It still may 
frankly, it could get a lot worse than that. And, and we all know examples of people during the GFC in particular mm. who are wiped out entirely. Their entire equity was wiped out by yeah. the margin call. So it happens. Um, but just, yeah, that, that's kind of the, that's why margin calls are so, I hate borrowing for shares for that reason. Mm. When they are, now, this is always difficult, right? Because again, you guys talk about behavioral biases all the time. There are some rational answers to how you can borrow well for shares. Yeah. The problem is if I give a rational reason why it's okay and a way to do it, everyone says, no, I can do that. It's like 90% of us who say we're better than average drivers, right? It mm. can't be possibly true. Everyone thinks, no, no, I'll, I'll take the margin line because I can do it properly. Yeah. By definition, that's not going to end up being true. And so I always, I'm always super wary to say, here's how to do a margin loan if you're going to buy shares. Because again, we, people take it too far, get themselves into trouble. And I feel kind of responsible for that. So that being said, if you're going to borrow for shares, do it as part of, and you guys may disagree from a property perspective, but if you've got equity on the house, at least use something you're not going to get a margin call on the shares themselves. In other words, separate the loan to your point about cross-collateralization. Mm, separate mm. the borrowing from the ownership of the shares, particularly if you've got enough equity in the house, if you own half your house and you want to take another 10% out of that and buy shares, yep. then you're not going to get a margin call on those shares. And it would take a lot for that house to have a, a, a you know a margin call from, from the bank's perspective. Mm. So there are ways to borrow if you have to, to buy shares. And and your point, Veronica, about buying able to borrow ninety percent of a house value to, to to leverage is spectacularly better with property than with shares. One of the great reasons to do property. And mm. again, Chris, what you're saying, you know, people have this tool for you know, pro mm. or anti shares, pro anti property. It's where a lot of share investors should be thinking. Well, hang on, if, to make my hundred thousand dollars work harder, if I can borrow seven, eight, nine x versus borrowing maybe half again, or maybe mm. even maybe double if you're lucky. Yeah, it's a very very different outcome, and that the gain you need on property is much much lower from an equity perspective, yep. rather than the purchase price perspective to actually start making money. I mean, it's really good good advice strategies. You're, mm. you're giving away all the good advice tips here. <laughs> um, but I mean, you're right. So um, definitely if you are going to buy shares, you know, you've got 50 grand in the bank, yep. you know, really if you have a home loan, it should be in an offset account. So Correct. that's a, a mistake sometimes people make. But then they say, well, I'm not only getting 3% in my offset account or 3.5% offsetting my mortgage. I can do better than that in shares. And they don't realize, well, they shouldn't be using their cash in their offset account. They should just borrow $50,000 against their equity Correct. to buy those shares. And then there's a cost of capital. And a lot of people don't realize that. And but I mean, this, this is why people really need to get advice from a number of different advisors, you know, mm-hmm. so you can get that sort of level of advice from a, a good financial advisor. Some accountants even can. Some, but they've got to be very investment savvy, right? Mm. But but you know you can't, and then and then a good broker or a good totally. you, you know yep, I mean yep. you need all of that, like mm-hmm. because trying to work out all these various levers to make sure that you put more pun mm. up, to, to to make sure that you actually get it right and also do things in the right order. You know, the amount of people I know that pay down their home loan because it's a really wise, sensible thing to do and then they've got no flexibility if they decide they want to keep that as an investment property mm. and because, you know, they've done really well and they want to upgrade mm-hmm. and they're trapped, you know, from a tax perspective mm. and, and they haven't even thought about it because they've yeah. been doing these wise things. I mean, I've been caught out myself not realising that I needed to get a, a, advice right at the beginning, mm. totally. you know. I'll throw two things in quickly. The first is I would say um, – I know you guys mean this by definition, but I want to say it out loud because it, it makes it easier. People should never, ever invest in anything for the tax reasons. No. So when people, you know, the old, I, I have an old line and, and, and Chris, I know you're in the, in the game, so I apologize if I'm, if I'm treading on some turf here. But, um, you know, I, I'm sure <laughs> half the accountants it. in Australia would be out of business if people stopped asking, how can I pay less tax? Yeah. 
rather than how can I maximize my after-tax returns? What right? about they how feel can like the I same make thing. more money so I pay more tax? That's it. So you want to min- you want to maximize <laughs> your after-tax return, mm. not minimize your tax. And mm. exactly that story. If I, I I hope I get a million dollar tax bill one day. I desperately hope I have yeah, to pay a million dollar tax because it means I made a squillion and I'm, yeah. I'm stoked, right? <laughs> now if I can just make the same game without paying a million dollar tax, I'll take it. But you know, can I pay less tax? Well, yeah, there's a whole lot of things I can do, but they're probably largely stupid. Bloody car leases and that sort of stuff drive me bananas because people, you know, someone says you can save money on tax by taking out a new car lease. Well. If you're going to buy a new car anyway every three years, then okay, fine. But don't be fooled into taking an action just because of the tax saving. Yeah. It's going to cost you money in the long run. Maximize your after-tax returns is the only way to approach it. So that's that's really, really important. Yeah. Car uh, leases. Are, I love all these things. <laughs> car leases, I agree. They, oh. um, you, you Really, they're, they're a product that's sold and people self-justify a car lease because I save on the tax. Yeah, no, exactly. you're not saving on tax. You're actually losing money <laughs> and you're claiming some money in a I justify my car lease because I'm a petrol head yeah. and, it, and I like great. to be sustainable in other yep. ways, but it's just, for me, it's just a luxury. Totally. You know? And if you're going to have mm. a new car every three years, use the tax effective. That's that's exactly yeah. So you're maximizing your after-tax returns in that sense because mm. I'm going to do it anyway, so I might as well save yeah. tax doing it, right? <laughs> exactly. But just to do it the other way around, which is yeah. how can I pay less tax? Mm. Well, actually, if you do these things, you pay less tax. Oh, it's I'm like sh- negative yeah. gearing. I mean, you know, oh, you know I can it. pay less tax. That's all right, but <laughs> you lost money, right. you moron, you know. Exactly. If you bought brand new, you lost even more money correct, than you realized. Correct. Just quickly, secondly, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say was that for all of the borrowing stuff, if you're young enough, and we're talking people under 30 here, you can absolutely have a fantastic retirement by investing regularly in shares and probably property, but for my yep. for my own, mm. so without borrowing a cent. So I don't want people to finish this thinking, I've got to find a way to borrow to buy some shares because that's the smart thing to do. Yeah. It can be useful. It can be smart. It can be all that stuff. But if you start early enough and you save regularly, I had an old math teacher who said, if you put $1,000 away between your eight, a year, between your 8th and 30th birthday, you retire with a million bucks. And that's, that's pretty compelling, right? That's pretty. It is. Was there was somewhere where I read something about a dollar a day from the day you're born? Yep. Um, by the time you, I don't know, I can't remember. By the time you're 47, you have a million bucks or something yeah. like that. A dollar a day from the day mm. you're born. I mean, that's yeah. the best gift that anybody can give. Them right. And so you have to borrow a cent to do it, right? So now, now the people listening to us who are, you know, 38, 45, you know, 72. Mm. So you know, people are in different circumstances. But I just want, I just want people to know that if you're young enough and you start, or you can, or you can put enough away. You don't want to, ideally, you don't have to rely on what they say, rely on the kindness of strangers. In other words, if someone's going to call you a loan, you're always at the mercy of that person mm. who may or may not call you a loan. Mm. If you can get away without it, then take it. Yep. If you want to or can or need to put uh, to borrow, then by all means do it, but do it responsibly. So you, we've mentioned behavioral biases quite a few times in you know this episode. And you know, back on the people who are just thinking they can become you know, share traders and they start reading about things, what are some of the big behavioral biases because you know it'd be good for us to talk we've talked mm-hmm. down a property side but we haven't talked about on actual when you're doing share trading what are the some of the big ones that we all fall for yeah. that you know unfortunately you know we're just going to be guilty of so a couple yeah. of things um first thing is believing you're smarter than everybody else right mm-hmm. so shared you talk about shared traders and i try and differentiate between traders and investors right yeah. so if you're if you're investing with less than a least a year in your investment thesis you are it's a zero-sum game over the long term, we know shares rise. So if you're an owner, if you're long shares, mm. you're much likely to do better rather than worse because the market goes over time. Mm. If you're if you're trying to trade over a short-term time period, you're betting against somebody. Currency is even worse, by the way, and CFDs don't even talk about it. But yeah. if, you're, if you're buying shares today with the hope of selling them in two months' time, you're betting against someone who's doing the exact opposite, right? That, that's the trading kind of subset of the market. So, And you have to believe that you're smarter or better than somebody else and guess what? If you're trading short-term, you're betting against computers and algorithmic trading, high-frequency yep. trading. You are not going to beat the computer. I don't care who you are. Unless you've got the fastest computer in the West, 
you're not going to beat those guys. Mm. So the shorter your time frame, the less likely you are to actually make money, notwithstanding short-term capital gains tax plus the brokerage cost of actually making the trades in the first yeah. place. Short-term trading is for mugs. Um, some people get lucky because if you toss a coin 100 times and everyone does it, someone's eventually going to call toss heads 100 times, just lower averages. doesn't make you smart, just makes you lucky. So mm. don't trade, don't think you know better than anybody else. Mm. Then it goes back to the same biases that you guys can talk about all the time, right? Um, the, the, probably the key one is anchoring. So yeah. I will sell when, and it's normally either when it gets to a certain price or if they're losing money, I'll wait till I make my money back and then I'll sell. Yeah. Well, guess what? <laughs> you just don't have to come back to the price you paid. Um, they don't have to get to the target price you set. That's a really, really big one that most people struggle with. Mm. The other one is that that really key share market one that kind of, it's that, yeah, the, the stuff everyone hears of, you can't go broke taking a profit. And you know what? Literally, is it true? Absolutely. But if you sell that with a 10%, if you sold Amazon after a 10% gain and it's now up 20, 30, 40, 200 fold, mm. guess how much money you've left on the table by trying to lock in a profit. And that whole, you know, air quotes, lock in a profit thing is just a real mistake for most investors because if you're right, if the A, if the market does rise and B, if you've done your work right to buy the right companies at the right price, uh, Warren Buffett, the world's greatest investor says that yeah. time is the friend of the wonderful business, the enemy of the mediocre. Yeah. If you buy the right business, just leave it alone. Give it time to, to, to prove you right mm. rather than trying to be too clever, take money off the table too early. Yeah. So that's a really, it is like, I mean, they're both really big biases. And I think that, um, you know, we, we do feel guilty. You know, you buy a share for a hundred dollars and it drops to $90. Yep. Something's not right here, right? Yeah, it's not yeah, good, exactly. good. Yeah. Now you stick, you stick to your thesis. Oh, it's still a good company. It'll come back. Drops to 80. Right. And then you freak out. Yes, so you've gone yes. past that comfort point. <laughs> That's right. And you're like looking at your loss now and you're like, I need to get that money back. I can't lose money. Loss aversion. Yes, get that exactly. off and, the phone. And really, <laughs> um, really, if it's not a good company, sometimes the best thing to do is to cut your loss yes. and to, to run. Right. And so you've made a bad call. Let's get out. If you bought another share, right. And you know, that's gone from a hundred to 120. Mm -hmm. You're right. There's momentum behind this. This company's forecasting the profits looking better like this is probably a good company and what a lot of people will do is they'll sell the 120 dollars share yes to bank their profits i feel good and then the 80 dollars share they're keeping hold of it so That's just disposition yeah. yeah you're right right yeah. in, the, in the in the um in the colloquialism it's you know it's watering your weeds and cutting your flowers mm. so you know it's exactly the wrong thing to do right you shouldn't be it's the other way around you're hoping those companies are doing well yeah. let them grow let them let them bloom let them do their thing yeah. you know so you're exactly right and that that is it is just effect as you say Veronica. that that's the key thing for most investors is trying to separate out the price you paid one of the best pieces of advice i've ever heard is set your you know most of our brokerage accounts are online they have your costs there mm. you can normally overwrite them set them all to zero just oh, forget about the idea. price you pay because it doesn't yeah. matter anymore mm. whether you paid a dollar or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars for shares doesn't matter they're only worth on the market, what they're worth today, and the future value is only what they're worth at that point. Mm. What you paid or someone else paid yesterday or a year ago or 10 years ago is completely irrelevant yeah. to what you should do from here. The only question from here is, and one of the great ways to think about share investing is to imagine your entire portfolio was liquidated overnight, every night. So you start the next morning with cash only. What would you buy? Now, I'm not saying do it because Kill you in brokerage and capital gains uh, and, and tax. But if you think about just purely, you know, just because you own it today doesn't mean you should own it tomorrow. You probably own it today. You're probably going to own it tomorrow because you own it today. And so it's just too hard to think about all that kind of stuff. But intellectually, if you can say to yourself, if I was forced to sell everything today, would I buy the same shares the same portion tomorrow? And if mm. you wouldn't, there's your answer. Yeah. It's a really good litmus test question. Yeah. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress mistakes that can be avoided. 
Please, Scott, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Oh, I'm not sure about a property dumbo. I've got plenty of plenty of share market dumbo. Give us a share market dumbo. Then. So I'll I'll share with you a, a bit of a, a bit of a bias, and it's kind of both. It, it, it goes both ways. There's two dumbos in the same in the same conversation. We recommend shares most months, and generally speaking, recommend a company either the shares have been up or they've been down. And so let's say let's say the shares are up. I'll get half our membership who will not half membership, but a group of a subset of the members will say, "But it's already up. Why would you buy it now?" The other half of the group will be recommend something that's down. Say. But it's already falling. Why would you buy it now? <laughs> and so the answer there is kind of th- that idea of again, it's a bit like we were just talking about the the price that you're paying and how much you're you're getting out of it as a result. The only question is where does it go next, not where has it been. So the biggest mm. dumbo in my mind, this is contrary to what a decent subset of investors will say, is please ignore the charts. Following the charts will tell you where the shares have been. It will not tell you where the shares are going. It just it can't. Right? There is nothing in 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 the laws of anything other than some fancy expensive software that someone's trying to sell you that says just because a share chart looks a certain way, the future must be a certain direction, right? Just, just simply not true. And in fact, more often than not, the one where you make money is where it, div- it diverges from the past because something new or different is happening. So, I mean, for our listeners there, um, you know, there's lots of people who sell share trading, um, there are. like guidance and experts and things like that. And there's a huge portion of those that are based on charts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what they're saying is because a stock has dropped from here to here, mm-hmm. reading the chart, it's going to do this, you know, it's got a, a a floor in the price and it's going to then go back up to this price and then you should buy it and you should sell it. So what you're saying is Easy, that charting <laughs> investment advisors is all nonsense. Would you uh, agree? Yes, I think nonsense is a very nice way to put it. I, there are some smart and even reasonable people who believe in it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to necessarily cast them all as charlatans. I think some are genuinely believe in what they're trying to do and do it themselves and try and make money themselves. So I want to separate out the people who are deliberately just trying to screw you for money versus those who honestly believe it. But if you can show me where it says anywhere that just because a particular piece of paper has some squiggly lines on it, that therefore the next move must be either up, down, or nowhere, I, I don't I don't know how that can be logically true by definition. There is an element of, of it has to say the behavior of crowds and saying that Correct. in the short term, this might happen next. But again, if it was nothing here, if, if short-term trading, again, it's a zero-sum game, right? So if everyone knows that already, then there's no opportunity left. And if no one knows that, then there's plenty of opportunity, but you can't be both. You can't have the charts and be right, and be right often enough, and everyone's doing the same thing. Mm. Otherwise, by definition, it competes itself away. It's the old, remember the old um, January effect? Mm. So the January effect is that shares should go up in January, right? It happened 10 years out of 11 or something. Mm. Everyone got onto that, and then it became the Santa Claus rally because everyone bought in December to get ahead of the January effect. Mm. And now we're seeing buying in November to get ahead of December to get ahead of January. And yeah. so at some point, this th- those upsides yeah. get competed away. Yeah, well, I mean, I sold all my shares yesterday. It was the 2nd of May today. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Um, you know, cause selling May and go away. You know, exactly. The other one is you buy, you, yeah, exactly. You buy in May and they sell in May and go away. Yes. So uh, Come back on St. Ledger's Day is the, the yeah. UK origin of that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, you're so right. I mean, there's so many things that with share trading and, behavioral biases mm-hmm. that just kind of get in the way of, you know, the fundamentals, which is buying the good companies, holding them a long time, you know, reinvesting your dividends. Mm-hmm. You know, is there some other tips, you know, from a share point of view that you say, look, if you are going to do it, do X, Y, Z, you know? Yeah. So really, really simply put, so work out how much money you're going to save when you get paid. Put that in a separate account, either when you get paid Don't or even better. Get, exactly. <laughs> get your employer to put it in a separate account for you if you can, or do it automatically. Put that money in a separate investment account. Don't touch it for anything. That that's money's gone, right? Pretend it's like super. You just can't get to it. Yeah. Can we just stop there? Because that's another really like. There's so many little good little strategies here. 
when you said that, you know, you just gloss over it. Mm-hmm. Tell your employer to put it into a different account. Yeah. Why would you do that? Well, because you never see it. Yes. Mm. And you've actually just paid yourself less. So you instead of earning. not having it. Yeah. Correct. And so, Correct. especially when you get pay rises, this is an amazing yeah. thing to mm. do because you're already comfortable on your current living standard. Right. I've already got enough money. I'm paying the bills. I'm having a good life. We well, yeah. hope they are. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you don't get this lifestyle creep, right? Correct. And this, That's you're on this huge, treadmill. Huge. And so, if you do get the pay rise, I didn't get a pay rise. That's gone into my investment account. That's mm-hmm. gone into my mortgage offset. Mm-hmm. That's gone into my super. You know, and that's an amazing strategy to do. And it's, and the reason why is it just the, plays into our behavioral bias. It's in the account. We're yep. more likely to spend it. So, so this, and this, that's pre-commitment, right? So the, yeah, the single so best way to avoid behavioral biases is pre-commitment. Yep. So future Scott is going to make some silly decisions unless I stop him doing it now. Yeah. And the way to do it now is say, I'm going to take that money as you say, Chris, take it out now because I, I really, I believe that $100 when I get paid, I, I'll try not to spend it. In fact, I, I'm sure I won't spend it. And at the end of the week, I'll definitely put it in the investment account. I'm, I'm sure I'll remember to do that. And I'll definitely invest it because I'm sure I remember to do that as well. And life happens, right? It just happens. So pre-commitment is the, is the best goal to avoid. So put it in a separate investment account. Invest it regularly, as regularly as you can afford to. And if you're a share investor, try and keep your brokerage to less than 2%, ideally less than 1% if you can get away with it. Now, Comsec, I mentioned them before. I have no relationship again. I said I'm a customer. If you're buying less than 1000 bucks of shares, they'll do the trades for $10. So you buy 990 bucks worth of shares, you're getting for less than 1%. If you're saving 100 bucks a week, every 10 weeks, you're going to go and make a trade. Because a couple hundred bucks yep. a week, you're doing it almost every month. Mm. Do it regularly, and that's the dollar cost averaging, Chris, that you've talked about a couple of times. Mm. That's that's the very best way to do it. Either an ETF directly or just what if your favorite share is right now? Pick a company and try and build out that portfolio over time. So regular, create a habit. So pre-commitment on one hand, habits on the other. You can get those two done. That's 90% of the battle. Again, running your point earlier, we want to beat the market. We all want to beat the market. But if you do nothing other than beat yourself by be, you know, taking away the the, the kind of yeah. you know monkey parts of our brain mm. you know, or the, the elephant parts of our brain, and, and just focus on the the stuff you know you can do. So pre-commit and make a habit of doing it. Mm. Even if you lose to the market over forty-five years of investing from twenty to sixty-five, you can have a squillion. You can afford to lose to the market by a couple of percentage points and still have a squillion dollars by the time you retire. If you just do that, mm. if you do it really well and beat the market, you can have multiple multiple literally because the way compound work multiple times that. But either way. It's getting the behaviors and the habits right. The rest looks after itself. And this is the thing that's interesting for me is that, you know, there's all these talk about short-term gain and all these, this, you know, oh, I've made a mozza doing this or you got to buy these shares because they're going to go up overnight or whatever. <laughs> yeah. All this sort of short-termism and yep. trading and speculation and everything. And that sounds so much more sexy and same in property spruiking just quietly. <laughs> um but how boring is it in 10, right, 20, right. 30 years' time? And I look at my balance <laughs> and I go, Jesus, where did that money come from? Yeah. I don't know. It just came from a little bit of discipline, mm-hmm. <laughs> some wise decision, yep. a commitment, yep. some discipline. Um, so investing, and- investing is not a hobby, right? Investing is not a pastime. Investing is not a game. Mm. People do it because they want the excitement of that. If you want excitement, go to the track. Take, give yourself 100 bucks. Yeah, go to the yeah, track. Yeah, horses. Le- leave Dogs. your share portfolio. Yeah, right. <laughs> The old Sorry, dish lickers, I'm... God love. Um, <laughs> leave, leave I'm your, not advocating yeah. that. But... <laughs> leave, leave your portfolio alone. Let that do its own thing. Mm. Right? That's not fun money. That's not that's not kind of play money. That's not excitement money. That's just slow, boring, compounding money. If you need some money off to the side for entertainment, go and do that. You know, but don't don't confuse the two. It's not supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be interesting. The the, the investment you know landscape is littered with the. But some of the listeners will remember the graphene craze, right? Graphene, this particular mineral, was supposed to be the next best thing for everything. Lithium was one after that, right? Because mm. everything's going to be electric cars. A lithium company's going to make a squillion. That hasn't happened either, by the way. Um, it, you know, the, the hot the gold bugs. Right, right. The hot, the hot stock, the hot <laughs> idea, the hot trend, the hot Bitcoin. money. Right. Mm. That's, they, these are these are exactly the examples of people see it start to go up, 
And you know what? Again, talking about biases, we all want to believe that it might be true because and the, I think it's Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's sidekick, who says the very worst thing for investors is when you see your neighbor get rich because mm. that's when you start to think, I, mean, I, can be, I can do what he's doing too. I wonder what he's doing or she's doing. I'm going to go and chase that thing. But who catches the bag in that situation? Who's the one who takes the biggest fall? It's the ones that are in the last. It's, it's the ones that yeah, finally yeah. say, this is the 2007 thing, right? So we had uh, some people I spoke to at the time and, and subsequently who were not share investors, right? 2001, they didn't want to invest in shares. 2003, they didn't invest in shares. 2005, they didn't invest in shares. 2007, they finally went, oh, I'm sick of seeing so-and-so get rich. Okay, right, I'm ready to, I'm ready yeah. to do it. In fact, I'm going to sell my house or my property. I'm going to pile all the shares because finally I see the market's going up. And then guess what happens? The GFC happens. Now, fast forward 10 years, and we talked about the market looking a little bit more expensive than average. If you're going to, if you're invested now, stay invested, right? If you're invested in 2007, stay invested because when you dollar cost average in 08, 09, 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. you've built that portfolio and you've made, you've done very, very well. Yeah. But those people who will finally succumb to the, you know, the fear of missing out, the FOMO effect, will finally jump in almost entirely at the wrong point. Yeah. When your cabbie's giving you stock tips, as the old, as the old saying, yeah. that's when you've got to be really, really worried because that's when everyone's given up any sort of conservatism and everyone's joined the party. And that's 2000, that's 1999, that's 2007. Mm-hmm. When everyone's in, no one's thinking. And I guess the hard part is, is that, um, you know, the people who have entered there, you know, are the ones who see the biggest paper loss and they're the ones who unfortunately are much more likely to sell when they hit the bottom. You know, mm. and so and that's where off the market. I, I bought in 07, I sold in 09 and went, I knew I shouldn't have invested in shares. It's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Not only did they sell in 09 at the worst price, they then stopped investing. When if they'd yeah. invested in 9, 10, 11, they would have made their money back and then some. Yeah. I was right all along. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's the greater fool theory. And, um, you know, and, and there's, there's a lot of people who can make money out of this greater fool theory as well. Um, you know, it's the people who made money in property in, in Hobart, let's call it, right? Um, you know, they knew that, so they bought pre-Hobart. They knew that, you know, the cycle of this and they, they jumped in, they jumped out. Unfortunately, a lot of people are going to lose in Hobart, you know, mm-hmm. as an example, the people who bought in the last two to three years, um, the people who made money have probably bought four or five years ago and have sold. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And what you're going to see now is the people who bought in these cities went there for these growth returns and Hobart's just going to tick along now and probably not do much as an example, not picking on Hobart, but yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the most because, recent example. Because yeah. they're, they're just, uh, I guess the people who have kind of got the property at the end and now going to get, you know, underperforming huge opportunity costs and returns because they just chase that dream. And, um, you know, oh. so it happens in every asset class. Every mining town is littered with oh, the debris yeah. of people that got in too late. So much for yep. 20% yields, right? Mm, yeah. Well, listen, on that note, thank you so much for joining us, Scott. This is fascinating chat. Um, it is great to meet like-minded individuals, you yeah. know. I mean, uh, I actually and hadn't realised there were that many. What was that? And non-like-minded, but confirmation bias. <laughs> well, yeah, well, no, I was about to say, and, and, and in many surprising ways, you know, like so I didn't necessarily, we certainly didn't invite you because we thought, oh, he's going to say all the things we agree with. We invited you because... Fundamentally, a lot of people get into property because they think that's the only and the safest way to invest. Mm-hmm. I actively disagree with that. I actively think that only a very small portion of property in Australia is investment grade. And so your own home is a different thing. So in terms of investment, if you can't afford to buy an investment grade property, then there are other options to make money. And that is why we want to get you on board so that we can have a bit more of the, an understanding of what else is out there. Oh, 100% for our listeners. I mean, I just had a client this week, you know, he's got a million dollar share portfolio and says he wants to sell that and he wants to get into property and, you know, and he wants to build, you know, a property portfolio and live off the rental income and things like that. And I'm like, no, 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 you're doing the right thing. If you want income, 
stay with the shares, you know, mm-hmm. keep yeah. the flexibility, get your dividends, reinvest your dividends if you don't need it, et cetera. It gives you so much more options nice than going and buying yep. property, which is a very low yielding asset generally. You got to pay strata, you got to pay insurance, you got to pay maintenance, etc. So, you know, and it's at different ages as well with shares. You know, if you're 58 and you're looking to retire in six years' time, and you want to go and invest, and you've got equity, maybe you know property's not the right idea. You know, maybe your time frame's just so short mm. that you know you it's just not, not worth it. Not if you live to 100. Well, everyone's negatively geared through retirement. Yeah, but who says they have to borrow that much? Like, you know, if they got a lot of equity, maybe it's good. Well, you can equity at this age. I'd probably be buying <laughs> shares, to be honest, because at, at this point there, when you get to retirement, mm. if you buy a property and you're 58, you can't sell the bricks. But if you buy a million dollar share portfolio, yeah, as you go on a big holiday, go on yeah. one of those $100,000 cruises. Well, you, you know, sell a bit. people live different things, but you know, you sell <laughs> your shares down over, over yeah. retirement. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, at different ages, you've got to be really careful that, you know, the right asset you're buying is, is going to suit where you you know, your drawdown is going to be, et cetera. So yeah. great last point everyone care about living to your hundred, right? Most people say I'll invest till 65 and then I'll do something different. Mm. The reality is you should be investing right through that period. Yeah. And again, the five-year time, that's why I said very early on talked about the difference between capital and the income from it. Even with shares, with property, with anything, it's a question of do you need the capital? If you don't, you can afford to have that volatility of share prices, for example, or property yeah. prices. If you're living off the income, if you have a dead due date at some point, I need to have the cash out by X, that's when the capital value matters a heap mm. more. And you, capital preservation, you mentioned that earlier as well, and I think that's really important for people to understand is that, that fundamentally if you're investing 100 grand for argument's sake, mm-hmm. you want that 100 grand, well, it's got to go up with inflation for starters. That's capital preservation, right? So mm-hmm. it, it keeps its value at whatever yes. the value of money is at you know any future point and then obviously providing income and growth on top of that. Correct. So, yeah. Anyway, look, this has been fabulous. Thank you, really guys. I appreciate your time. Thanks for Thank inviting you. me. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... You know, we talked with Scott about the disposition bias, which is really, in layman's language, (laughs) knee-jerking. Another word for knee-jerking. And the same thing happens in the property market, in particular when you've got a lot of negative headlines such as we have at the moment. And I talk to a lot of people about property every single day, day in, day out, and the amount of people that ask me, should I be selling now? And I'm like, well... Why? And well, because prices are falling and, and they haven't bottomed out yet. I'm like, yeah, but if you look at a long chart for how Sydney in particular prices go over time, they don't fall forever. And if you're living in your home, for instance, don't play games with your own home. You know, don't be selling out now because you think that, you know, the market is further to fall and you want to buy back in at some future point. So, you know, this idea of selling a good asset um, because of, you know, all the negativity out there is something that really you need to stop and think about. However, if you do hold poor quality assets and they really aren't going to be great in the long term, then yeah, think about selling it even though the market is falling. Because if you buy, for instance, an investment investor stock. And I, and I differentiate between investor grade and investor stock. So investor stock is a sort of property that's been built or marketed specifically to investors. There's not a multifaceted buyer pool that are interested in it. It's just for investors. And really that is not going to be changed in the foreseeable future. Then you could be sitting on continued loss making or, or lack of any growth for the foreseeable future. And if you have that type of property, then yeah, 
it's it's time to really cut your losses, I think. Okay, and that's the disposition effect, really. It's it's really where people are more likely to hold on to a poor quality asset because they want to wait until things turn around and they're more likely to sell a good quality asset because it's done its job for them and actually made the money and they feel better about that. So I think I just want, um, you know, all of you out there, if you are sort of being tempted in this direction because of all the negativity out there in the marketplace, then uh, – you can also go back to one of our previous episodes. We talk about, you know, how not to get stuck with a lemon in your portfolio. That is a great resource for you. We'll put the link to that episode in the show notes so that you can link straight back to it. But the thing is really understanding the caliber of your asset. Don't need jerk and sell a good asset just because the headlines are bad. Things will not be bad forever. They will turn around. And if you have a poor quality asset, yes, seriously, think about selling it. Join us next week when we interview Australia's first female professor of property, Sarah Wilkinson from the University of Technology in Sydney. Now, we have a very interesting chat around sustainability, but it goes into much more detail than just looking at new development in our built environment, but also looking at retrofitting and repurposing buildings and what we can do with existing structures to actually increase our comfort levels, the values of those properties, but also sustainability and our contribution to the environment. It was an enlightening chat because we were privy to hear about some groundbreaking research and I very much encourage you to join us and listen. Now, just quickly, don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on theelephantintheroom.com.au and don't forget to download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Get the report and find out. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.